Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. And just a reminder, next Monday on the Blister Podcast, we will be airing my upcoming conversation with Jeff McFetridge about The Abstract Wild by Jack Turner. So yeah, we're firing back up our Blister Book Club, and I now think I have a pretty good sense of why Jeff picked The Abstract Wild. This is quite a remarkable book, and I'm looking forward to sharing with all of you my conversation about it with Jeff. And today, our guest is Henry Munter, who is a lead guide and the general manager of Chugach Powder Guides in Girdwood, Alaska. Now, I was supposed to be in Girdwood just a few weeks ago and had planned to sit down with Henry and Blister reviewer Paul Forward, who is also a lead heli guide at CPG, but that trip had to be canceled. But I still wanted to have this conversation primarily because Henry is a really interesting guy. Henry and I talk about what it was like making the call to shut down CPG's operations right as the heli season was in full swing. We talk about the evolution of heli skiing over the past 20 or 30 years. We talk about decision making and some of the tools and practices and books that Henry uses and refers to when it comes to forecasting and guiding clients in the field or handling all types of different aspects of the CPG business. And in what definitely makes this one of my favorite podcast conversations of all time, Henry and I ended up talking about the German philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer's seminal work, Truth and Method, then immediately transitioned into talking about Winnie the Pooh. So yes, philosophy and decision-making and memory and heli-skiing are just a few of our topics today. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Henry Munter. Here we go. Well, Henry, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, Jonathan, I am I'm doing well. I am in Girdwood, Alaska, which is home for me. And I'm at the, the hangar, which is Chugach Powder Guides' office here at the Girdwood Airport. It's a beautiful May, sunny day. It's an awesome time of year up here. And I am, yeah, happy to be talking to you and, and the, uh, the blister world. <laughs> well, the biggest thing to say here is that I am incredibly disappointed that I'm not sitting in the hangar with you, uh, you know, which was sort of the the whole plan here. And, you know, like many people around the world, uh, certain trips got postponed. And um, but I, I was really looking forward, uh, as I've talked about, I think, on other podcasts we've done, I was supposed to have just come back from my first trip to Girdwood you know, and was planning on hanging out with you and Paul Forward for something like 10 days. So, you know, given that, I'm I'm sorry that we're doing this conversation remote, but I do look forward to the time when I actually do make it to Girdwood and we, and we do actually get to have an in-person conversation here. Yeah, for sure. Girdwood will be here for you. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we're used to tele skiing. We're used to having down days, but down season, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, let's just start here. I mean, tell us a little bit about this wild spring that, you know, we all just went through, but it's kind of interesting, I think, to hear from the point of view of a heli operation in a K, how did this all go down for you? Um, let's say starting end of February, you know, through March. So if it's okay, I, I think there's some funny context that I want to start a little bit earlier. And that's New Year's Eve in Girdwood mm. was, we had had a, a record warm fall here and, and it was, things were looking bleak. The resort had a late opening. It had been raining all early winter. And on New Year's Eve, it was raining sideways at 8 p.m. And it was puking snow uh, at 10 p.m. And I don't think it got above freezing in Girdwood, which is, which is unusual. It didn't get above freezing in Girdwood uh, basically until March. And it went from being a, a bleak, rainy fall to a snowy, wonderful Girdwood winter. We had great low elevation snow. The ski touring was going off. We were doing tree skiing runs out of the heli. And, and it, it all happened at the flip of the switch of 2020. And so collectively here, there is this feeling of optimism. I mean, everybody that's a skier knows what that feels like, right? When, when things go and go from the skiing's not that great to, wow, we're having an epic season. It's just, is the time of your life. And Yep. And it was such a, it was a wonderful time here. Everybody was fired up. The season was underway and we were gone. And, and um, you know, I think it was mid-February that I started being aware enough about the coronavirus issue to be really concerned. Before that, I was sort of hearing it on the news, but it was, um, was, wasn't to the point yet where I was was freaking out. And, and I, I remember all these these incremental realizations I made. And, you know, initially I think I was guilty of thinking, oh, this is just something that affects old people or something that's going to stay in Asia. And, and, you know, you just peel the layers of the onion back and it got a little scarier and a little scarier. And, and, and so I just started trying to digest as much as I could. And it was, um, I, I, I'm looking at these notes here. It was March 4th that I showed up at the hangar um, from town with a, a bunch of cleaning supplies. And, you know, at that point I had been telling all the guides, we need to be really careful. We need to be washing our hands all the time. We need to instruct all our guests during the safety briefing that we're not gonna shake hands and hug and high five and all that stuff that we love to do here. And it was tough because everybody was having a really awesome time skiing. March for us, end of February, early March is go time. And it, the daylight turns on, the snow, the snowpack starts getting fat enough that a lot of the great runs are filling in. And, and what we're all here to do was fully firing. And all of a sudden there's coming in from the side as uh, the general manager is saying like, Hey guys, you know, you don't have to come to work if you're worried about this. And if anybody gets any symptoms, you got to stay home and you got to wash your hands 10 times a day. And, and it was a real exercise in swimming upstream for me because people are used to me raising safety concerns, but this was way out of left field for most people. And, and there is sort of a gradual realization. And then boy, mid, mid March, um, it was over and it went from, this is something we're all barely aware of to the the season's done the state's locked down the 
the customers can't, shouldn't, um, aren't coming, and season's over. And it happened in a it happened in a flash. You and I were talking the other day, and you also noted this fact about Alaska, right? That it's also an oil economy, and given as everyone I think is aware of the like plummeting oil prices and you know surplus of oil this i can imagine is um not the easiest of times in alaska at the moment yeah it's a it's it's bleak here and alaskans are tough optimistic people and we'll get we'll get through this we had a a trial run a few years ago when the state went from really high oil prices and budget surpluses and and you know, a, a sort of make it rain mentality at the state level to to the prices crashing, production is cutting, uh, producers are not are not looking, and and you know that's that's hard on the economy at large. It, it's not particularly hard on us directly, except to the extent that a lot of our employees depend on the Alaska economy to to live the rest of their lives. You know, nobody. Nobody is immune to it, and so it's 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 a weird time, and and the the price really crashed. It was maybe last week or the week before when yeah. when futures went below zero, and that there's a delayed effect to get to Alaska. But but I think if we were all hanging out at the brewery, uh, having beers after going skiing the last two weeks, I think we would all our jaws would be even more on the floor. And the fact that we're all in isolation makes it. Makes it maybe harder to appreciate um, how how serious that'll be for Alaska as a whole. Let's talk a bit about your background. How long have you been at CPG? And talk a little bit about maybe how your role at CPG has evolved over your time there. I moved here in 2008, fall 2008, and I had been I had been living in Montana with my um, girlfriend at the time, now wife, and she had gotten through nursing school and was looking to get a, a job in a bigger hospital. And she got a great opportunity in the emergency room here. I, for my part, was looking just generally at being in the avalanche industry. I had, I had been trying to get opportunities in heli skiing for a couple of years and finally sort of got the nod um, to come up to Chugach Powder Guides, which is a place that a lot of my sort of mentors growing up had a lot of respect for the people that started this place. There's sort of a an air about CPG that that I knew about, was aware of, and 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 so when I got sort of the nod to come participate here, I was I was pretty fired up. So we we loaded up the the Aerostar and and drove north. And um, when I got here. I started meeting a bunch of other people that said, oh yeah, good luck trying to work for Chigach Powder Guides, you know? And because um, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough industry to break into. And I think a lot of people have, have tried and, and not had it work. And that winter, I, I just started showing up to meetings and, and was really interested and, and put my best foot forward. And it was coincidentally a, a time of economic uncertainty for the company. The, the financial crisis and the and the sort of great recession had taken a real toll on bookings and so the company was telling a lot of its its longtime guides from outside not to come unless they had clients that they had to ski with and so all of a sudden the the travel economy got like 
shifted to more last minute bookings and and CPG had just as busy a year as normal, but a lot of a lot of people weren't there. And so I ended up um, filling a role and, and getting a fair amount of work. So I just started as a as a sort of red shirt freshman guide and um, and you know with heli skiing you, you get your foot in the door and then you get an opportunity to get in the heli and and you get lucky enough to to perform well or not you know most of that has to do with whether the conditions were good the day that you get out there and and sort of incrementally you work your way up to having the respect of your your co-guides and I I had that opportunity and got lucky and and kept getting guide assignments and um, it was just a couple of years later that there ended up being a a vacancy in the forecasting role and and I had I had put a lot of effort into I mean I was I was in my in my free time I was stitching together time lapse loops of satellite images I had done a bunch of weather recording projects sort of for free at, at the hangar and so just out of my own real passion for Alaska weather and the snowpack here and having done having really dug in when I got here and done a ton of ski touring I, it, it sort of ended up being a natural fit for me to start forecasting and then we just had this crazy turnover where um, I went from forecasting to uh, then being a lead guide then being the head guide uh, within a couple years and so I was I was took a management role within three or four years of starting here which is a little a little bit before my time <laughs> you know I wasn't ready uh-huh. for that but somebody needed to do it and um, and that's that got me to to 2015 when our our general manager had stepped down and I had been through I, I had been through an, enough sort of at the middle management of the company to think that I didn't I, I wanted to either take that job or or not continue to do the job that I was doing with a, with a new manager and and the owners were really supportive and so I in 2015 I took over as the general manager and and that's where I am now so I've been here for 12 seasons I guess now um, and this was my fourth as the general manager fifth boy it's hard to do math when you're when you're talking on the phone, um, but uh, but I still and I still guide. I'm still heavily involved in the snow safety program. I'm I'm still um, I'm still out there lead guiding uh, about as much as anybody on the staff. Hmm. I I try to I try to stay involved in every part of the company I can, and then and then the coolest part of the job for me is that it's a year round job. So this time of year I'm doing sales and marketing and development work, but that that all allows me to to just think about skiing in the Chugach basically all year. And that's a, that's a really awesome privilege. I got to ask, when did you first either meet Paul or when did you and Paul sort of first become friends? If that's not kind of one in the same answer. Yeah, no. Uh, so Paul forward is a, you know, he's a great lead guide here and, and a great friend. He, I want to say that he got, I started hearing about him in 2012 or 2013 as somebody that we should bring into the mix. You know, we're we're always looking for people that are are great skiers, great communicators, are really experienced in the mountains, and people that'll fit with the team. And you know, even though we we tend to have a fairly low turnover here, the we're I always try to keep my ear to the ground. And and at that time, you know, when when we were hearing about Paul was when we made a big transition from being, you know, there was years that went um, at sort of 
before my time and, and around when I started where the majority of the core guide staff showed up from, from outside, you know, Jackson being the sort of predominant location in California and, and just showed up for the season. And, and now we're, most of our staff lives here. And we made that, we made that transition um, in part because I felt really strongly that there was a bunch of great people here that we should be using. And, and Paul was sort of one of those people. You know, I, I, I'm fond of, of ski culture for having these underground legends out there. And, you know, every, every ski community has got some, you know, some person that you, you hear about that's got all these great accomplishments that isn't in the magazine, isn't on the, on the social media is, you know, sort of, you think about people that have, have been doing stuff sort of under the radar and, and are really accomplished and respected and also sort of unknown. And, you know, Paul was sort of in that, in that category, I think here. That is very high praise. I totally agree with you, but that is also very high praise. I mean, he's, he's totally letting it slip though, Jonathan, you know, he's like on the cover (laughs) of magazines and, and like, uh, (laughs) <laughs> he got voted into to this like top forty under forty like Alaska business oh, leaders right. thing. You that's know, right. It's it, it's the underground. It, you know, it's eroding. Not so underground it, anymore. It, it can only yeah. last so. It can only last so long. You know, I don't want to call him a sellout or anything, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's great. So give give me a little bit too. You you've kind of told us like so you got to CPG around two thousand eight. You were in Montana. Talk to me a little bit more about like growing up. Where did you grow up? What were you into? Um, give me that part of the background. I grew up in, um, I was born and raised in the Wood River Valley. So uh, Ketchum was what I considered hometown. Sun Valley is the ski mm-hmm. area there. And my dad owned a ski shop and sold backcountry ski stuff and Nordic ski stuff. And that was my, that was my upbringing was being in that shop. I mean, I was there just all the time and it's, uh, an awesome place and, and an awesome environment and, you know, got me, got me a lot of opportunities, both to sort of be in the, in the business side and also the, um, I mean, we'd take out the old, like two skis and leather telemark boots. And my dad would take me out in some pretty mild, but still it was backcountry skiing. I was fortunate to be able to go as a, as a pretty young guy, you know, the, the backcountry ski community around Sun Valley is awesome. There's these great hut yurt networks and and just a bunch of great skiing and then he um my parents got divorced and he not too long after that started dating and eventually married uh, janet who is my stepmom she was an avalanche forecaster and a former heli ski guide and and just a wonderful mentor growing up and somebody that i always looked up to for having charted her own course and able to able to make a a living and a career out of being in the mountains. And, um, my dad, you know, always kind of joked with me that like, uh, his business was not going to be handed down. So I better go figure something else out. And I, (laughs) and I think that was, I think that was mostly joking, partially just, uh, in recognizing what a stubborn person I was that, that might not work for us to be together there, but also just a, an acknowledgement that his parenting style was very like, uh, you know, you should figure out what you want to do and go do it. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I grew up in that environment where I, I was just sort of inspired by, by that aspect of skiing. And for me, there's always been this sort of 
divergence in skiing between skiing and and sort of mountain travel or avalanche work. And I, I think of the two things separately. And and the ski on the skiing side, I I just loved jumping, right? Like I I was in the ski program growing up. Um, where I did some Nordic and some racing and some freestyle and, and the, the freestyle side of things, I was just so drawn to because I just loved to jump off stuff. And, and so I, I started mogul skiing and being on the competitive mogul team. And, and that took me kind of through high school with some soft ambitions of being a great mogul skier that, um, I think I was I was too stubborn there to ever try shorter, softer skis, you know. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was really fast, but I blew up a lot because I was always on these like 198 centimeter slalom skis, you know. And mm-hmm. and um, and and Sun Valley is just a it's a big mountain, and it was a different time then. Where uh, I mean, I was just up there alone a lot as a kid, and I spent a lot of time like ski ski team would be over at three, and I'd be out there until 4.15. Like I, I, I knew about ski patrol sweeps at a very early age. Like they would, hmm. they would sweep me off the mountain all the time <laughs> and <laughs> find me in the trees by myself. I mean, it was just a, it was a weird, it's, it was so different, um, so different then. But, but I, I just, I love that kind of skiing and Sun Valley's, Sun Valley's mogul skiing heritage is just awesome. Like my coaches, oh, yeah. my coaches were beautiful skiers. I, I existed in freestyle skiing and the transition from um, what I consider like old school mogul skiing to what it is now. And, and, and it happened, you know, I, I, my last year competing was 99. I think the, the Mosley mute grab was 98. And that, mm-hmm. that transition from twisters and spreads to acrobatic airs was like, was awesome for the aerial part of it. But, but I think also came with a, a change in the nature of the skiing. I mean, I, my most, my most visceral memory of a mogul competition was like 12 or 13. And it was on, I think silver Fox at snowbird, which is like a pretty steep run for a mogul competition. And, um, and there was, um, they were doing the forerunning and they were playing that song by queen another one bites the dust. And, and it was like five out of the six, uh, like pace setters just all like exploded. And I mean, it was so awesome. I was, I just remember thinking like this sport, this sport is so awesome. Like the five of the best guys just totally exploded. And uh, this is great. <laughs> but then it, it kind of turned into, it, it turned into something else for, for everybody else and for me. And, and, you know, really, I, I think I, I love to jump, but I also love to sort of explore the mountain and be all over the mountain and be up in the sun. You know, the poor race kids at Sun Valley have an awesome place to train, but it is dark and cold, you huh. know, and and like you don't you don't get to see the sun man it's a nice part yeah. about sun valley is seeing that sun yep wow so this is this is interesting so your dad has a ski shop your stepmom is a forecaster and you know working with a heliop and so and then you go on and you're doing competitive mogul skiing so to find yourself as a general manager of a heliop now yourself this sort of all really kind of makes sense almost feels inevitable oh yeah no i mean i like i used to um my bed at my dad and janet's house was like there was a a 
a very airy wall between where my head was and where the speaker phone was. And so like I woke up every every morning of the winter forecast season, I woke up to like the avalanche forecast on speaker phone. So I was like fully indoctrinated without without knowing it, you know. I like I heard so many avalanche forecasts in my like teenager trying to wake up state over my over the course of my life that it's sort of inevitable that I had to go down this route. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of heli skiing. I know you've got some thoughts on this and I I would love to hear them. Sure. I mean, Girdwood's a good case study in it. I mean, there's these awesome and anybody wants to see some great feel good heli skiing. Um, there's a website called heliskihistory.com. I think it's got the link to this stuff, but they're, they're flying Mount Alieska in the fifties and just skiing powder. Like they don't care. Um, and, and heli skiing kind of, Alaska's always had a lot of helicopters because of the mining and oil and oil and gas work. Alaska is just an aviation heavy state and helicopters are no exception. In the, in the late seventies and early eighties, there was a, a 212 operation that worked here. I think it's like far North heli ski or great North is something like that, that, um, when Alieska was mostly catered to a Japanese, um, audience, they would take people out in these big helicopters and fly them around. And, and that lasted for five or six years. The, the owner, one of the original owners of CPG, Dave Hamry was around for that, that stage. And he started, when that stopped, he started like a heli ski club where you'd get a bunch of friends together and they'd rent Naystar for a couple of days. And, you know, most of the, most of the run names of our core terrain around Girdwood, the stuff that, that we've been doing since, since my time started here all came from, from that era of, of, um, you know, late seventies, early eighties, and then, and then moving into the, the late eighties, early nineties. And when CPG started in 1997, there was already a bunch of, a bunch of the train was sort of figured out and it grew. <laughs> What's so different in, in the early nineties or, or late nineties, early two thousands, they're just, there just wasn't that much access to backcountry skiing. The, the resorts were just starting to think about a lot of side country. Um, mm-hmm. The sort of backcountry skiing revolution hadn't really happened. AT bindings weren't, weren't that great or that widely available or weren't considered to be that, that effective and people just weren't doing it. And, and so we just, we had a lot more people come to, to just ski great terrain and great snow. Um, I think now, in, in promoting heli skiing to, to grow CPG and to, to grow the business, there was a lot of film crews came through here and, and did the inspirational skiing stuff that, that sparked a bit of a wave of people wanting to come here to, to get that, you know, it wasn't, it, there was maybe a transition away from just powder skiing. And there's always been, and there continue to be people that, that just want to ski good terrain and good snow, but there's definitely a, an ongoing sort of push and pull of, of getting on spines, for example, or getting into that sort of film, film grade terrain. And, uh, and, and we, we still, we still deal with that. And then the other thing that's been wild since I started is just the safety equipment has, you know, every year we've added a new layer to that. That's, 
we have so much more, our resources now are so much more developed than they were 12 years ago. And, and that makes it safer and more accessible and also just way more challenging, right? Like when I look at how much we would ski in a day 10 years ago, like it was totally normal to go out and ski 30 or 40,000 vertical feet in a day. And now even when the conditions are good for good long runs, it's, it's really rare that we do that. And uh, I think a, a big part of that is now everybody's wearing an airbag pack and everybody's got a radio on and everybody's got a, mm-hmm. the hardest, the hardest part about heli skiing for most people, myself included, is getting in and out of the helicopter and getting your skis off and on all day. Like the, the <laughs> skiing is, it's like pretty easy, right? And unless yep, we're doing something is. really silly, the skiing's the easy part, but man, getting your skis on in some funky place over and over again. Like you take that for granted skiing at the resort, but, um, but it's, it's hard and people get tired. And when you have to do that over and over and get your, get your waist belt through your harness loop on your backpack over and over, it's like the, um, when you strip that away and, and go in the time machine, it was a lot easier. We used to give people one back. We had one backpack for our group. Like the guide would carry all of his stuff or her stuff. And then one person in the group would carry a tail pack and the tail pack had one radio and one shovel. And that was our backup. And now everybody's got a beacon probe, shovel, harness, radio. There's also, you know, an extra radio. All the guides have sat phones. Um, the, the list sort of goes on and on. It's just, it's, it's way better. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go back for a second, but man, it was easier then. <laughs> <laughs> just less stuff. It's funny. I remember I was talking a couple months ago with Wendy Fisher and listening to her talk about some of her first times going heli skiing, you know, it was like, yeah, we didn't have beacons. We didn't really have anything. We just kind of would go get on top of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's kind of remarkable to think about sort of going back to the, the sort of earlier days of some of that. And it's kind of like, yeah, times have changed. I mean, even just the knowledge of where you were going. I mean, there's you hear all these stories of people just getting in the helicopter and pointing, right? And and now, I mean, yeah. they, now you sort of have a duty to know exactly where you're going, even if you've never been there before, because you can you can figure it you can figure the train out pretty effectively with Google Earth these days, right? Like you can have a pretty good idea. I mean, I I do a lot of going into places that I've never been before and it's pretty rare that I don't have a pretty good idea of what I'm getting before I get there even though I've never set foot in that zone. So wait, say more about that. So these days it's still you you're spending a decent amount of time still sort of scouting zones. Yeah, I mean what one of the things that's happened with heli skiing in the last few years is that the we have figured out that if you take classic heli skiing is multiple groups in the helicopter, right? And and the cost is shared by all those groups. And and so you take one group out, the helicopter goes back, gets the second group, brings them out, and then you sort of yo-yo all day there like that. And that allows you to that allows you to to really work a zone really effectively. And it's it's cost effective because the the fairly high bill for that helicopter just to be there is is spread out amongst a bunch of people. There's There's been a bit of an awakening to the single load private, which is where you take two guides and up to three guests, but sometimes just two if you want to carry more fuel. And 
and there's no deadheads, meaning the helicopter never goes back to base. It just goes with you all day. And when you, when you do that, your range is, is about 10 times what it is when you have multiple groups. Because you can, you just fly the direction that you want to go. You're never going back, so you don't have the the time pressure. It's much more expensive, and it's a, um, it's it's something that you know not that many people can afford, want to afford, but it allows just a, a dramatic increase in range. And so that's what I've been doing a lot the last few years, and it's taken me way farther than I would have ever thought possible. Going back a little bit, just in terms of safety assessments that we're able to do today, are you seeing that the more sophisticated assessment options, equipment, et cetera, that we have today is making a noticeable difference from what was happening 10 or 20 years ago? So I've, I've got a lot of thoughts on this, and this is, this is a really big issue, and I'll, I'll do my best not to dig myself in too many holes here. So there's there's a couple different things. One is that we all have this bias as as people that travel on avalanche terrain. We all, I think, a lot of us have this bias towards worrying about the snowpack. And you know the the fundamentals of an, a level one avalanche course are that you've got weather and you've got snowpack and you've got terrain and then you've got the people inside right and and i think we we're just there's a lot of us that really hone in on the snowpack issue and and i think that on one side of the coin the snowpack is the most interesting because it's got all these wonderful physical processes you can learn about and and the stuff changes before your eyes and it's it's sort of magical and wonderful and interesting and at the same time the, the marginal gains that we've made on our snowpack knowledge are, are fairly limited. I mean, I could point to some really concrete examples of, of good progress from 20 years ago, like the extended column test is a, a much better test than a compression test or a, um, a shovel shear test. But, but on the margin, is it, is it significantly better um, enough that, that we have really eliminated the uncertainty in the snowpack? Not really, because there's just only so many places that we can effectively do those things. And when we're, especially in heli skiing, when we're flying from sort of zone to zone, um, does that does that really change the game for us? So, I think that on the on our, our ability to assess well, snowpack is just this classic uncertainty, right? Where it's it's not like you're rolling the dice and you're it's going to be one, two, three, four, five, or six, and you're able to make some probabilistic analysis about like, well, it's a one in six chance, it's a one. You know, you don't know if that dice has six sides or a hundred sides or a thousand sides sometimes. And, and yeah. so, sometimes you do. Uh, and in, in areas where you're working a lot and have a lot of weather data, you do. But a lot of times you don't. You know, I gave a presentation a couple years ago at the regional avalanche course about, uh, conference about um, terrain uncertainty, which is this I think a, a bias that I see a lot in avalanche workers, I, you frequently hear people say, well, the train is the one thing that we can control. And the, the train is the only thing without any uncertainty. And, and I just want to like flip that idea on its head because I, I think that the tools that we have for assessing terrain are, are really limited. If you know the terrain incredibly well, like if you're at a ski area and you've got 30 years of institutional knowledge, that's a different thing. But if you're going out into into unknown realms, how effectively are you 
are you assessing that terrain is a real question. And, and I can point to some really classic examples around here. Like um, we've got this, this mountain in the backyard that's gotten us into a lot of trouble in the past called Peak 6-1. And it's, it's a 2,700 foot run if you ski it top to bottom. So it's a big fall line, right? Like a, a, a full-size avalanche there goes 2,700 feet. It's a big path. But it's nestled under these peaks that dwarf it around it. So it, you just you can't look at Peak Six One without thinking like that. That looks like a little hill. You know, the one of the biggest avalanche paths to affect the highway around here is is called on the on the state park map Bramble Knoll, and the the forecasters call it Centerline. And it is, I mean, it is just a rifle at the highway. It is like a, a almost a three thousand foot ditch with a big start zone that just aims right at the highway, right? And and the map calls it a knoll. <laughs> it's crazy. But but you can't you can't it's really hard to to learn those tricks. And so there I am down the rabbit hole on on this terrain uncertainty, but I think we're we have some real limits to how well we assess terrain. And you know, weather is like um you can fly from one spot where there's 30 inches of new snow to um, 10 miles away where there's two inches of new snow. And and so like, and there's no instrumentation that's gonna tell you that, you just gotta go figure it out. So so there's some limits to that. So I think what, what your, where your question kind of started is, you know, are we making, are we making assessments better than we were before? I think that the, the our actual skill has has not changed dramatically. Our, the amount of information that we're able to use has has gone up quite a bit, but um, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't say that that our skill is significantly better. And that gets to the human problem in the middle, and that's where I think I focus most of my my attention. I mean, I try to stay up on all the technical stuff, and I and I I work incredibly hard on the terrain side. Like I've got this giant library of terrain photos, and and I've got a Google Earth workflow that. I can figure a lot of stuff out about the terrain that I didn't used to be able to, and that's really helpful. But I think in terms of just understanding how our, our minds work, how our social beings interact with each other, how we deal with really fundamentally crappy memories, you know, that's where I'm, I'm focusing a lot of my effort now and where I think we have some real skill gains to be made. Yeah, and it's so funny. I mean, we... <laughs> We're almost an hour in on this conversation, and I really thought like the heart of the conversation was going to be about decision making. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait, I have all this other stuff I want to kind of ask. So I'm I'm gonna just force you to come back on, like actually probably for multiple episodes because we have a ton of di- a ton of different things we're supposed to be talking about. But let's maybe what we could do here is just spend a bit of time on this decision-making part of it. And I mean, I, I think it would be absolutely fitting, you know, to maybe devote just an entire separate other conversation down the line to, I mean, this is something that all of us who are spending time in the mountains, you don't do like one conversation about decision-making and then you're like, well, that was good. Kind of, you know, I know what I need to know on that front. It's like, this is an evolving topic, right? That we need to be considering all the time. So with that long kind of, I guess, caveat, I still want to go down this road a little bit with you. And I guess what we'll get started with is you just said, yeah, we've got a lot of fancier equipment and tools in front of us these days, but still, I think you want to say coming down to the human 
decision-making is maybe the most important thing? I mean, we see it in, in helicopter skiing where we're a good test case, right? Because you have sort of ultimate freedom with that thing. I mean, there, there are limitations to what the machine can do and how far it can go and where it can land, but uh, a lot fewer limitations than there is in any other uh, recreational vehicle I've used by far, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's romanticizing a little bit, but there's a lot of like, oh, that, let's go there. And then you're there. Um, I mean, when you make a decision in ski touring like that, you sort of think about it for two hours. Um, when you're when you're doing a mountaineering expedition and you decide to move to the next camp, that's one decision that you think about and revise all day long. In the helicopter, it's like you're there in two minutes, and you while you've gone from, do I want to do that or not? to um, here I am. You've also had to figure out where you're going to get out. You've had to find your landmarks down the run that you're going to look for. You've had to make assessments about what a safe place to put the helicopter is while it waits for you and you know, on down the line of, of major and, and minor decisions. And then we do that all day, every day that we're out there. And, um, and so it, it's, it's something that we, at Chugach Powder Guides, we, we talk a lot about because the those decisions, you know, need to be sort of properly, there needs to be a proper foundation on those decisions. And, you know, we're, I mean, so, and maybe this is an interesting way of contextualizing this about decision-making. There's just long been an industry standard in helicopter skiing that, that comes from Canada where you sit, you sit together as a sober guide group in the morning and um, not that we're not sober in the field, <laughs> but like as a sober-minded would be a better word. Um, <laughs> as a as a sober-minded group, and and make a list of what runs are on the table and and what runs are not on the table for that day, and then you and then you stick to that list. Any runs that have been made off limits that morning can't be um, can't be reconsidered in the field. And we've tried and tried and tried to implement various versions of that and, and it just hasn't worked. And I think there's some amount of Alaska that, that makes it hard to do that. There's some amount of Girdwood. We have a lot of rules that we have to follow here. There's a lot of different land management agencies and permits that are, have very specific rules. So we're a little different in some of those ways, but I think ultimately for us, what has been found to work the best through a lot of experimentation is we talk about what train we're going to consider and we sort of allow the group to chime in about things that they would think about or things that, that they might try or, or areas to avoid. But then we, we do allow for that uh, expert judgment in the field on whether something should be skied or not. And so a lot of the days, I mean, I, I'm guilty of going out there and just always trying to find where there's only two inches of new snow and then working my way mm -hmm. back towards where there's more snow. That's like my favorite mitigation strategy because I don't, that's one where I feel fairly comfortable with with making those field assessments. It's like, well, I can see old tracks. There's there's obviously only four inches of snow there. I can get started here and then and then you work your way into it. It's a lot less scary than you know, on days when you fly into a zone that's got a bunch of new snow and you start fresh with, you know, who knows what's under there and who knows how much is on it. And so, so on this like decision-making front, you know, we, we do empower guides to go out and make decisions in the field. And, and we have a bunch of, we have a bunch of internal protocols, procedures, policies that, that help guardrail that stuff consensus models, um, ways of communicating what you're planning on doing, 
you know, some strategies that are as sort of simple and practically technical as, um, you know, I'll, oftentimes if I'm setting up for a new run, I'll pick out a 200 feet, 200 vertical foot piece of snow that I know I can do safely. And sometimes I get out of the helicopter and get right back in. Sometimes I only go 200 feet and get back in. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that we guardrail it, but we do, we go out there with a lot of freedom and, and, um, and that freedom is, uh, is, is sort of daunting sometimes. And, you know, I, I try, I try really hard to do the heavy thinking about, about what kind of decisions we're going to make here in the office, in the hangar in the morning, so that when you get out in the field, you, you can make more quick, intuitive calls and, and you have to spend less time doing really labor intensive mental mental effort because it's really hard to do all that and try to figure out where you're going to go. You know, it's funny. I found myself thinking a lot last night about the difference between bad decisions and wrong decisions. Have you ever thought about this? I'm sure my staff just is really, really sick of hearing me talk about is how there are a great a great percentage of the decisions we make we'll never know if they were right or wrong yeah and and that's and skiing skiing in the backcountry on uncertain on unknown snowpacks is like maybe one of the better examples of that true uncertainty where your your feedback is just really low quality right like you don't we we've all seen it where somebody skis a run and nothing happens and and we kind of go like oof man um, yeah. were they, were they right or lucky or, I mean, flip the mirror on yourself. Like I, I have certainly thought that about my own decisions a lot, you know, was I right about that or did I get away with that one? Yeah. The, the thing I guess I found myself wondering about last night, like if we talk to every adult human being on earth and ask them, have you ever made a bad decision? I think we get a 100% answer rate of yes. (laughs) But then I found myself thinking like, okay, does it even make any sense? If you ask the question, do you think it's possible to go forward and say for the next year or five years or 10 years or for the rest of your life, is it in play for a human being to say, yeah, every one of us has made bad decisions in the past. Is it possible to go forward without maybe ever making a bad decision? That's what I found myself wondering about. And, and I guess what I, it kind of came down to me thinking about like this difference, p- potential difference, um, whether it's a false difference or not between like a bad decision and a wrong decision? Yeah, I mean, it, I, it's interesting to like ask the question of if you asked everybody, you know, but the, the follow-up question you have to ask is like, do you make more bad decisions or less bad decisions than average? And you could, you could count on most people saying that they make fewer bad decisions than average. That's one of the things that's really tough about what we do is that on, on one hand, we... You just can't, you can't be a backcountry skier that makes a lot of decisions and have no sort of ego, right? Like you have to go out the door believing in yourself. And yeah. if you, if you don't believe in yourself, you, you won't get very far. 
at the same time, you're gonna you're gonna end up putting that ego against um, against your memory, and our memories just suck so bad. You know, it, it's so easy to make up justifications for the stuff that you did unconsciously without even realizing it in in retrospect as as ways of sort of fitting that um, that decision with with who you are. And I was this uh, presentation I was at not that long ago. After the fact, we were talking with this uh, Montana State University professor who was helping on some social research about avalanches, and he was kind of he asked me, you know, what would be what would be a piece of technology that would really change your life as a as a decision maker in avalanche train, and and it took me a while to come up with it, but I think the number one thing is like a real memory. You know, I I so wish that I could be completely accountable to accurate recollection of exactly what happened out there in in the way. And, and it's not like I want to start just wearing a GoPro and and revisiting like all that all the time. But but I do I, I do wish that we were all better at remembering what, what actually happened. Um, one one way like a practical like other than me just sitting here talking about how how bad we are at stuff like a, a practical thing that I do is. Um, I try to think of decisions as major decisions and minor decisions, and major decisions are ones that you can't go back on, right? Like um, this is yep. you're you are moving forward in a sort of like plot point kind kind of way. Like past that decision, you can't go back. And and minor decisions are all things like, well, if you scoot the group up too close to the run so that they can see, and you end up feeling like you're all standing on the run, you can make people sidestep back up, right? Or like if you if you drag people down into a ditch and you don't like where you are, like you can, you can get them out of the, out of the spot that you don't like. And, and, and that on a practical level helps me sort of understand like how to, how to not get in too deep all the time, but, but it's hard and, and boy, decision-making there's just a, the avalanche community has been thinking about that really hard for a number of years. And, yeah. It's really easy to muse on it. It's really easy to understand limitations. It's it is very hard to come up with practical things to move forward with. Yeah, yeah, and I think ultimately, where I ended up on this, you know, hopefully, I mean, it's it is an arbitrary thing, like bad decision, wrong decision. Like, I'm not just trying to, you know, get into false uh, sure yeah equivocations. But I think what I ended up with was. There's a 0% chance that any of us going forward won't make a wrong decision. Like we're going to be wrong sometimes, right? In terms of, of end results. And I mean, this applies to life in general, right? But I think if there's any chance of trying to diminish the number of bad decisions we make, that would mean that we are doing a good job of keeping in mind all of the relevant information, right? Like in hindsight, if we're like, oh, I totally, I knew that, you know, again, if we're talking about whether we're talking about avalanches or investing in the stock market or whatever, it's like, I knew that this was probably risky or dumb, but I did it anyway. That's a bad decision, right? Whereas a wrong decision is I did my assessments. I did my best to take everything into account and turns out there still was a, a bad outcome and I just was sort of wrong. But I was like, man, maybe this is useful for us to like, none of us will ever 
make only correct decisions. But if we can start getting into like just across the board in our relationships, you know, in investing in AVI, you know, reading, AVI terrain reading, maybe we can actually try to think about let's just not make bad decisions here. A great book for any of your listeners is called, I think, Super Forecasting or Super Forecasters. And it, it, the research there is about sort of lay people who use a skill set to develop expertise at making predictions about things that aren't in their field of expertise. And, and there's, there's great research to indicate that you can develop a bunch of skill if you, and I think it very analogous to what you're saying about making good decisions, even if they're not the correct ones, like they're, the decisions are made in the right way, the analysis is done in the right way. And I think we, um, one practical thing that we take from that is I try really hard to encourage our avalanche forecasters um, who, who do our daily avalanche forecast to, to aim for accurate, accurate forecasts as opposed to safe forecasts. And, you know, safe, safe forecasts are like, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the weather forecaster doesn't want to tell people that it's going to be sunny and then have it rain, right? They're happy to tell people it's going to rain and then it's be sunny because, you know, people won't go crazy. And similarly, like I, I know public avalanche forecasters deal with this problem is once they go to low, if it was moderate out there and, and people hit the button, they the consequences are real. But in our professional world where we, we only forecast a professional audience, we try really hard to, to forecast accurately, to make decisions that are in assessments that are accurate, which means sometimes you say it's safer than it is. And this, you know, one of the things I, we texted about was my, um, my fear stress meter. And, and this is where yeah. <laughs> I, on like a, a technological level, I just, so I, I have a, an Apple watch and I use an app called AutoSleep. And every day I get a report when I look at my app of how much sleep I got and how high quality it was, you know, last night I, I got seven hours and 59 minutes of sleep and two and a two and 45 minutes of it were deep sleep and my heart rate was such and such. And I, I really, I, I look forward to a day when I can come home from my day in the field and get an anxiety uh, reading. And like huh. my watch can say like, this is how anxious you were today and this is when, and and sort of overlay it with what we were doing. Because I we have our after, after skiing meetings with our people that we were skiing with and just so frequently I'm out in the field thinking like, oh, this moment, you know, like I, I skied this run and I tucked in under the cliffs, but I should have gone a little bit farther and I made that decision mm-hmm. the wrong way because of this and this and this. And, and you know, here I am anxiously watching my group ski because I don't really like how I did this. And then, and I, I think to myself, I got to remember to say this to the group. And, mm-hmm. and then I get home and we do our meeting and we come to the part where we talk about things that we did wrong or mistakes that we might've made or, or things we could have done better. And I'm just thinking like, I know there was something, what was it? Where was I, you know, and I can never, it's so hard to remember because you're, you know, now you've got the endorphin rush of you've come home for the day and, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do that. And I, I think we would, if we got some sort of objective analysis of how we really felt on any given day, it would really help. That's really interesting. Yeah. And probably, helps underscore why earlier in this conversation you were like, I just wish I could, you know, 10x my memory. And certainly as a guide, I mean, any of us going out into the backcountry, we're making not even minute by minute decisions, but almost, you know, sometimes it's almost second by second decisions. And you just only level that up when you're the guide 
and you're responsible, not just for, you know, you and a couple of your friends, but like a whole group of people that are 100% counting on you to make the right calls. Yeah. I mean, and, and anybody that's had a child, like, and then, Mm. and then had another child will agree that like you frequently tell yourself you're never going to do something again and then go do it again. Right. Like (laughs) the experience of childbirth is so crazy and so wild and like just mind blowing. And, and, you know, a couple billion times a year, people forget how crazy it was and, and just do it again. (laughs) And like you, you put that in, in context of like what we do in the mountains of, oh man, I would, I didn't like that. I wouldn't do that again. And then, you know, you forget that stuff. Yeah, it might well be possible that life with a, a great memory is just impossible because you'd be just weighed down by. I mean, I've I've used a lot of this downtime because of the pandemic to go through old like I've been scanning a bunch of old slide photos and and scanning a bunch of old family photo albums to to get it into the cloud so that it can stay forever and and it's just like so it takes so much effort to process all that stuff and so maybe maybe like going skiing if you remembered every time that you like skied that run before would just be unbearably heavy, but, um, but it seems to me like it would be a, an improvement. <laughs> Since you brought this up, one of the most memorable things I've ever read about memory, you know, and this is back in my kind of philosophy teaching days, but Hans Georg Gadamer, probably the first time that Hans Georg Gadamer has ever been brought up on like a <laughs> heli skiing <laughs> podcast, but, uh, he wrote kind of this seminal book called Truth and Method, Wahrheit und Methode, for those who want to go you know, read it in the original, <laughs> original German. But um, Gadamer has a phenomenal section on memory, actually. And he does, to your point, he actually does make the call that life would literally be impossible if, in effect, this is not Gadamer's terms, but... To, to make a contemporary analogy, if we never were able to kind of delete stuff from the hard drive, life would actually be impossible. Yep, yep. And so it's really fascinating. And, and um, I do, I mean, anybody, Henry, I should like buy this book for you and send it to you um, <laughs> because it's, we live, we do. I think all of us live in this, I know it well, right? The kind of dream of like, oh, if... If our memory was just, you know, a hundred times better than it currently is, wouldn't that be amazing? I think got what Gautamer writes in Truth and Method points out as definitively as I've ever heard, it would actually render human existence impossible if we never forgot anything. This certainly maybe becomes clear if you think about moments of grief and moments of loss. Memories do fade on um, pain fades. And so if we suffer, as we all do, um, intense moments of loss or pain or grief, if that memory never diminished, it would be probably simply crippling. So I don't know, interesting stuff, but I'm going to, this might need to go on your uh, reading list. Yeah, it's, I, I've got it up in the browser. I'll, uh, I'll get it. I'll get it. Make it happen. <laughs> It's yeah, that was a really actually that whole book was a really important book for me. I always say like 
so, you know, we're in the weeds here. We're like an hour or something in. So, you know, <laughs> if anybody's still listening, but um, it was Gadamer's Truth and Method that I often say, like, that book taught me how to read, full stop. And it's a little embarrassing because I first read it as an undergrad. Um, that's pretty late in life to learn how to read. But whatever I was doing before that book, I'm, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that I really got it. Um, pretty seminal book for me. So right. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it makes you feel better, I feel like I've just learned how to read with Winnie the Pooh, which is um, <laughs> yes. which is full of really amazing stuff and also incredibly huh. hard to read out loud. It's something about the cadence. Like I, my, my older kid's really into it and wants to read it. Most nights I put them to bed and and uh, it's it's super hard to read, and man, you get some great stuff out of it. Winnie the Pooh. Yep. I could not be more delighted that we just went from Hans Georg Gadamer <laughs> to Winnie the Pooh. I feel like our work here is done. It's all this it's is, full circle, man. Yeah. This is actually one of the things. Like, I don't have kids, but I do think this would be obviously one of the most interesting things about having kids is going back to all of these quote unquote kids books as an adult, right? And then being like, oh my God, this is actually incredible. You know? Um, so I don't oh, know. My experience is, is mostly terror. And <laughs> what, it, it, what you, do you mean? The, you, you take this in, in the course of five years, you go from having a totally helpless, you know, essentially cognitively impaired little bundle of, you know, life, but not much else to, to having a, a, a child with a brain that's trying to understand the world and the world is a scary uh, and cruel and, and difficult place. And the, the tools that we all got to deal with that, you know, mythology, movies, it's all, it's scary stuff. Like every, I mean, every Disney movie starts with mom dying or dad dying or both. It's like everyone. You never, you don't think about that until you watch them with a five-year-old, but they're, they're horrible that way. Like, I mean, the number of movies where I'm like, oh man, that's right. Life is brutal, which is part of the reason that we, we go to the mountains and, and stay there for our whole lives is because it's a, it's a brutal place anyway. And, and the brutality that we experience in the mountains is at least one that comes with a bunch of beauty and choices mm -hmm. that we make. Um, but you're not immune from it if you just stay home. Yep. Actually a great point. You know, we we just lost uh, a member of our community um, here in the Gunnison Valley this week, uh, you know, in an avalanche accident. And so when these things happen, you know, there are a number of people here and there are a number of friends who are grieving this loss. And it does always focus your mind back on the like, why do we do these things? What you just said is a really important reminder, I think, as, uh, as once again, a number of us find ourselves reassessing and reevaluating. Yeah. And boy, my heart, my heart goes out to everybody in that community and, and to his family. It's a, that's a tough time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry for you guys. Yeah. I got to say though, I mean, to, to kind of piggyback, I, next week on, on the podcast, we're having a conversation about this book, The Abstract Wild. Uh, and I'm having the conversation with Jeff McFetridge and it's by Jack Turner. And it is, it is such a good meditation on the wild and, and its importance and why we go. 
Yeah, again, with what you just said so well, this is actually, as I was reading this book last night and thinking about you know the things that I just recounted this week, it's actually been a very uh, helpful reminder about about the why we go. Yeah, yeah, boy, it's it's a it's a it's a tough thing, and it it keeps coming back. And you know, unfortunately, it's not that great a consolation to the to the people that we're close to that that don't share our passion for the stuff that we do or don't agree yeah. with the risks that we take. And and uh, you know, to to those conflicts, I have nothing but but compassion to offer because it's it's just a it's just a crappy situation um, yeah. where where that rub exists and um, to you know everybody that everybody that is looking for a a way to go forward you know for me the answer has always been that like fundamentally I love skiing you know skiing is the first thing the um, powder skiing is way down the line and skiing giant Alaska mountains is even farther down the line than that. Like for me, the chair three on Alaska resort, which is where we spend most of our time with our kids is awesome and super fun. And, and, you know, if you can just reconnect with the essence of, of sliding down snow, even if it's somewhere super duper mellow, um, it, you know, that's, that's where it, it rebuilds for me and, and that might be helpful for people. It might not, but, um, the, the nugget, you know, we're, we're fortunate to be part. I mean, that's the one thing that's just so awesome about ski culture is you go to every podunk little mountain on a trash heap in the Midwest or on a block of ice back East or, you know, in some weird corner of the world. And you just can't help, but love sliding down snow and, uh, it's, it's awesome wherever it is. And, you know, lucky to have that. Yeah. I think this is going to be our last topic for today. Um, I want to not keep you forever because this could definitely turn into like a 10 hour <laughs> conversation here, um, which is always, I always like, I've come to think that's the mark of, you know, that's the signal that someone is, has led an interesting life and is leading an interesting life when it's like, you can't possibly only have like an hour long conversation with this person. So I, this is, this is evidence that you're doing it. I think the oh, right way. Your poor listeners. I hope they've given up by now. <laughs> you know, this last thing, and this is a huge topic in and of itself. And Paul forward might kill both of us if we did this conversation without him. And I don't, I don't want to do it without Paul because it's something that, he and I have talked a lot about, and I know that you and Paul have talked a lot about, but I would be remiss, you know, if we didn't at least broach it here or touch on it here. But um, I know that this is something that you and Paul care deeply about is heli skiing and environmentalism and sustainability. I certainly know for a fact that Paul is more passionate about the outdoors than like most of the world, I would say. And I sure get the sense that you sort of share that same appreciation and love. And, you know, this is often a thing of like, as many of us are trying to think more about sustainability and make choices that are kind of environmentally positive choices, you know, Paul has spoken about this on different Blister podcasts, like how to square all of this with the world of heli skiing. And so 
again, we're we're going to do for sure a conversation down the line again when Paul's with us. But I want to at least kind of get your thoughts a little bit on this. And because I, I, I mostly don't want people to get to the end of this episode having wondered about this the whole time and been like, is this just something nobody's thinking about here? So what, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, I mean, we should, this is a big topic and, and we should talk about it with Paul. You know, Chugach Powder Guides is, we're located in Girdwood, Alaska, which is a, a place that's um, very susceptible to, to major changes from a warming climate or a changing climate. We've, you know, I, 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 we've seen, we've seen a lot of effects on Alaska in, in my time here. And, and it, it's, it's something that we take really seriously and our role in it, we take seriously. And I think where, where we are with this right now is that I, as a, as a leader would like to offer some practical ways forward for our business, for our community, for our industry. And for a lot of people, I think right now, the answer to that is, well, we're you know not gonna go helicopter skiing. And that's, I totally understand that. For a lot of our guests, you know, this is, this is an opportunity. Um, what, where Paul and I, I think both see eye to eye on, on the climate change issue is, it's gonna be incumbent on our, our generation as leaders to, to do what we can to, to lead on this. And, and I believe that the best way forward is, is to do really good accounting. And I think the, at least for me, and, and so where, where we are right now at CBG is that we, we've sort of drafted some, some of that kind of language that is a business you draft when you want to do something, even though it's, it's sort of hollow, but we care, we want to make a difference. And I think that's going to start with us doing some, some fairly careful accounting of what is the carbon impact of, of helicopter skiing. And, and that work is, has been stuff that I've dabbled in for a few years and have a, a basic understanding of. And we, we started making some progress this year and, and had to kind of slow things down because all our efforts got focused on the pandemic. Um, where where we want to be in five years on this is we want to be a firm that is um, part of the solution. And, you know, there's no helicopter skiing is not going to be emissions free anytime soon. Um, and f- frankly, neither is any sort of travel to Alaska in an airplane. And that is whether you're ski touring or snow machining or helicopter skiing, you know, just your footprint from flying in an airplane is pretty significant. And at the risk of whataboutism, you know, I think what where we stand on this is let's let's give people the the knowledge of what the actual carbon carbon footprint of what we do is, and then and then I think we're ready for what I really think needs to happen, which is some carbon pricing. I mean, I, I really think that yep. for this to, for this to actually work, we need buy-in from all levels of government, state, local, federal, um, international, and and the world's got to get together and do something about it. And if groups like ours are ready to say, this is, this is what we're doing and this is what we can do to be part of the solution, I think we get somewhere. If, if everybody has to, if the call is for everybody to stop what they're doing, um, I, just, I think there's gonna be a growing divide between the angry people that have stopped what they're doing and, 
um, and are not making enough of a difference just by stopping and the people that aren't going to stop unless they have to. And, you know, honestly, coronavirus has been a, a good little example of that. You know, the, the businesses that right now in the, in the question of whether to reopen, the businesses that feel like they're doing the right thing by taking extra levels of precautions in the absence of government leadership are going to be are going to be affected more than the the people that aren't doing the right thing and and so when you when you circle back to the much longer and and much much more difficult issue of climate change i i i hope that chugach powder guides can be a we're never going to be a non-emitter um, we do hope to figure out ways to scale that back we're we're looking into you know all sort of manner of of mitigating factors, but you know, offsets in Alaska aren't really that great of an option, or or the ones that exist don't have that great of accountability. So for right now, we're just we're trying to take stock of of our actual position, come up with some actual numbers, and then we can at least inform inform people that want to know that this is what you're doing and this is how much it costs. And you know, I think most people are really surprised at the fuel consumption of the helicopter. Um, that thing when it's completely full of fuel, which it basically never is, has 140 gallons of, of jet fuel in it. And so like people think of a $1,500 a day bill for helicopter skiing is mostly fuel. It's actually most of that money goes to people and quality manufactured parts. So in the, in the scale of a world economy where you wanna pay people to do stuff and you wanna make durable goods that will last and don't have a huge manufacturing burden, helicopters are actually pretty good. You know, they, they burn a lot of fuel to fly, but it's a lot less than a lot of people think. Um, hmm. I don't want to like greenwash the issue by, by saying, oh no, it's not as bad as you think. It's, you know, it's burning fuel. Most people, most people are responsible for about 15 gallons of fuel on a day of, of helicopter skiing. And, um, and that's, that's not insignificant and their flight up here is a lot too. But I think what, hopefully if you circle back with Paul and I in a year, we'll have done some better math on on what that accounting looks like and and have some better answers for way people can make a difference um, in whether it's offsetting that or making life choices that sort of make that less of an impingement on the world and and I think ultimately what I want is is the skiing public to be more informed about what um, what it's going to take to fix the thing and and that is going to be a lot of pressure on corporate boards and political leaders. And we'll see if that's an influence we can exert or not, but uh, it's going to be, it's going to be the defining challenge of, of my generation and probably of my children's too. And I, I do hope that we can make somewhat of a difference, even though we're mm-hmm. far from perfect. All well said. And I do think that it is, it just strikes me that it can kind of become one of those industries that it's pretty convenient for people to be like, ugh, how could that exist, you know? And it's like, well, it's a tiny, tiny industry, right? And it's not something that 99.99999% of the world is doing ever or multiple times a year, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think those are just some of the interesting things. I love your talk about let's do rigorous accounting here. And I think that that's what we need to be doing. I think we should all be trying to do in terms of like, what food are we eating day in and day out, right? 
in terms of commuting footprints and things like that, that is stuff that I'd love to see all of us doing on all of our different, you know, in our, in our, in our day-to-day lives and getting clear on all of that. And then, you know, yeah, in the heli ski industry, let's get clear on that as well. But I think that when it seems like people are just kind of conveniently bagging on a tiny, one tiny little industry, that feels a little bit, I don't know, let's say disingenuous to me. People, I mean, we're, as, as people, we, we tend to answer an easier question than what's asked of us, right? And, and it's uh, cars and helicopters and airplanes are a really easy scapegoat. And they're not, they're not perfect, but man, um, anybody, that's, anybody that's interested in the issue that hasn't should um, read the Project Drawdown stuff. That projectdrawdown.org has really good practical solution-based uh, research on on how carbon is going to, how greenhouse gases are going to come out of the atmosphere. And I think when you see it in the holistic sense of, you know, like the editors there prioritize educating women and girls over, over electric vehicle creation, right? Like if we, if we look at the big picture, I think there is room for people to, to do some like naughty things like helicopter skiing, but they need to be, they need to be priced accordingly, right? Like helicopter skiing should be, I'm not going to voluntarily double or triple the price and then nobody comes here and then people don't have jobs unless everybody else Mm -hmm. is doing it. But if everybody's doing it, then at least like it's, it's priced the right way. And a lot, a lot fewer people can afford helicopter skiing, but, but maybe there's some benefits that, that come from, government oversight and and regulation of the issue it just it can't it just can't be left to individuals and individual businesses to do the right thing i mean there's there's definitely room for individuals and individual businesses to do the right thing and hopefully we're starting down that road we got a long way to go before i'm you know ready to put the right thing stamp on what we're doing but we're trying um but but it really needs to be a a groundswell and hopefully politically we can get there sooner rather than later well, Henry, um, this has been great. Really, thank you. And I, I really, like, we are, this this thing we ended on here, we are going to do this again, and we'll do it, you know. And Paul has kind of just shared with me some of the stats and things that he's, you know, been finding as he's starting this work of accounting, to use your term. And um, I think it's really interesting. And when we're ready to do it, we're definitely going to have that conversation again. And this time it'll be the three of us on. I, I, it's funny. I feel like I've cheated on Paul today. Like I've somehow been unfaithful <laughs> to Paul or something. Like ran off with his good friend and like had this really interesting conversation. So, you know, apologies, Paul. Um, no, but, man, uh, we, Paul and I talked to other people, Jonathan. It's cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, but this has been this has been a pleasure, and uh, it's really interesting to learn more about what you're up to and the things you're thinking about and the rest. So um, yeah, really uh, appreciate you taking the time, Henry. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's fun to think about all this stuff, and uh, look forward to the next time. Agreed. All right, man. I'll let you go, and uh, yeah, be safe, take care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Take care, Jonathan. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Henry for the conversation. Thanks to Jared Farley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And remember, next week on the Blister Podcast, the artist slash telemark skier slash skateboarder Jeff McFetridge will be back on the podcast 
and we will be talking about Jack Turner's book, The Abstract Wild. So go pick up a copy of The Abstract Wild because it is a really good and I think really important book. So read it and then let's have a conversation about it with Jeff. And if you are enjoying these Blister podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends. Thanks, everybody. And on behalf of all of us here in the Gunnison Valley, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. We will talk to you again on the Blister podcast next week.